Hi, I'm Rachel Bernstein. I'm an educator and licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm also known as a cult expert. And I've worked with victims of cults and high control groups for over 30 years. I was personally drawn to this work after a family member was indoctrinated into Scientology. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Indoctrination. I created the show to help survivors tell their stories and for experts to teach us what they know. My goal for Indoctrination is to empower the listeners to protect themselves and to protect those they love from predators, toxic personalities, and destructive organizations. Since I started the podcast, I've interviewed over 200 survivors and experts and journalists who took the time to come on to cover dozens of different high control groups and cults from a variety of different angles. You can listen to Indoctrination for free anywhere podcasts are available with new episodes dropping every Wednesday. Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm talking today with Charles Utter. You are the author of the book, Roman Collar Crime. I'm fascinated to hear more about your book. So welcome, Charles, to Mindship Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear about your topic. I mean, I've talked about clergy abuse in the context. I'm an ex-evangelical Christian coming out of the, you know, all the stuff that came out of the Southern Baptist Convention in the last couple of years, the Jehovah's Witnesses in Australia. I mean, there's this is a, a endemic problem worldwide, isn't it? Not just within the Catholic Church, for sure. Right. And, and very unfortunate because uh, it's the people we trust the most that are being doing the damage, and that's mm-hmm. really sad. Why do you think there is such a systemic problem just overall? Again, not just within Catholicism. What is the nature of this sort of religious system that lends itself to abuse by clergy? <laughs> I a think- huge question, I know. Frankly, I think it's human nature. Mm. Though a certain percentage of those who become clergy turn out to be abusers. And, of course, the added information, of course, is the fact that they, as pastors, have uh, unlimited amounts of trust amongst their community. And so mm-hmm. it makes them easier, uh, or it makes it easier for them to engage in, in an abuse. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, it's really—it's not really necessarily any different. And when it look, when you look at the broad picture, a certain percentage of human males, I suppose, uh, primarily, are going to act this way. And uh, the fact that their clergy gives them an opportunity to be much more active. In other words, they can get away with it. Yeah, uh, their victims uh, trust them, and so that's that's where the real tragedy is—not so much in the numbers. But in the fact, the fact that who they are, and the fact that they're abusing their their privilege as as pastors and mm-hmm. clergy, yeah, they have that sense of authority, and then you combine that with the religious element. They're sort of like a, a spokesperson for God in a way, aren't they? They're revered, 
They kind of have a hotline to the divine, as it were. And then there's another element to this whole thing, and that is that oftentimes they're protected by their denomination or by the church. I mean, how many times have we seen, you know, you're, you're talking about the Catholic Church. Within the Catholic Church, a priest will abuse, let's say, children in a, in a parish. It'll start to come to light, and then he'll be moved to another parish in another, you know, maybe three states away or another, you know, town or country or county away. And the church has actually protected this abuser, and then he's free to abuse again in the new place. Yeah, well, there's no question about that. That's a real tragedy. I'm most familiar with the Catholic Church, and that certainly is the case. And with it was interesting, though, uh, with this particular individual that I wrote about, they didn't transfer him. <laughs> oh, really? They just protected him. And he, he was involved in this for 20 years. You know, uh, Catholic priests are supposed to be celibate. And this priest came into a community in 1954, and he had a child in 1955. So he had a child, of a woman that he abused, essentially, or had had an affair with? Exactly. And it was a high school girl. I mean, she had just graduated from high school. So um, he stayed in that community until 1974. And the last five years that he was there, there was an active movement to get rid of him, and they had to fight with the bishop for that entire period because he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't hear of it. All he would do is ask them or force them to keep their mouths shut. You'd think the one scandal would have been enough to get him removed, you know, having a, having a child through with a high school student. I mean, that's, that's a major scandal in 1955 as well. It's bad enough today, but there's uh, something really interesting about that because, I, you know, I had a lot of facts on this priest, but I didn't yeah. know this this first of his children oh. was already writing the book. I see. So that came out later. It wasn't public knowledge. Well, maybe, no, no, none, of it, yeah. none of this stuff was public knowledge initially. I mean, he went on for years without anybody really knowing what was going on in the community. Yeah, very sly about it. Well, maybe we should, we're get, kind of getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go through the book. So- What's the book about? Take us through the storyline, because you mentioned before we hit record, it's not necessarily a factual book. It, it is factual in the sense that it's about this particular priest. Where did this take place, and, and maybe take us through the story? Well, this, this was uh, what I, another thing that makes it interesting, I think, is it was in a very small town ah. in North Dakota. The real name of the city was New England, North Dakota, and the school that he uh, ran in New England was a a Catholic boarding school of about 250 kids. And so he was the pastor of the parish and the, and the superintendent of the school, and as a, as, as a result, had a huge amount of authority uh, in the community. And when you're looking at a time frame of the you know mid-50s and going forward, you're talking about a time when priests in general were extremely highly regarded. Mm-hmm. In other words, Catholics, and I'm going to speak in terms of Catholics because that's what I know best, Catholics revered their pastors. And you just didn't say anything bad about a priest. Mm-hmm. It wasn't acceptable. And so even if you knew something that he was doing that was... Immoral, illegal, whatever, abuse, it could be anything. Whatever. Uh, question. You, didn't, you didn't repeat it. And mm. if, if you did, and of course, it's a small town, 
So the bars were, you know, full on the weekends, and and when people had a little alcohol in them, they tended to talk a little bit more freely. Mm. But when they did, they were they were shut down and forbidden. And in fact, they'd create fights in the bar. Really? Yeah. They felt that strongly about it anyway. Yeah. Even well, even after a few drinks, huh? <laughs> yeah, but that's what brought it on. <laughs> he actually, uh, well, the interesting thing about that was that. He had select people in the community who were working with him. One was his bookkeeper, and a couple of them were uncles of mine who were great supporters of his. And, you know, rigid Catholics, ironically, it was a great family. I mean, we're talking about uh, my mother's brothers. And I, I love those guys, but they had this ideal image of the priest, and they were not open to discussion of anything, you know, out of... Uh, any criticism, anything, yeah, yeah. Kind of, even the minor kind of, criticism. Right, and so it was It was really kind of sad in that, from that standpoint, but uh, my one uncle would, uh, he'd be in the bar, he didn't drink as much as others would, but he, he was the enforcer. When he heard the commi- the uh, conversations come up, he would he would grab these guys and threaten to beat them if they didn't keep their mouths shut. And, and he would shut them down. Yeah, there were some fights, yeah. Wow. It's so they really enabled him. Obviously, they weren't uh, trying to enable his abuse, but in a way, that's what that's what ended up happening from what it sounds like. They're protecting him, and he's then free to go on continuing to abuse and do whatever he was doing. Right, and they very likely didn't believe a- any of the story. Oh, sure. Yeah, it was all lies, I'm sure they thought. Yeah. It's a man of God. You can't, you know, you can't attack a man of God. That That's correct. That's correct. And now, you know, the, the Catholic Church, of course, has always been— well, one to try to hide these things and just to protect their image. And I guess because, you know, I, I don't have any knowledge as to why that was just opinions. You know, when you have an organization that is run exclusive, exclusively by males, there was likely uh, a high percentage of them that they think, didn't think there was anything really wrong with all of this. It's true. Yeah. It's a deeply patriarchal system for sure, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, the uh, the way this thing played out was that over time, you know, there were rumors that got out, and the kids were the ones that kind of spread the rumors. My my mother would just you know slap me down every time I said something, and so I was very careful uh, what I said. But we would talk amongst each other. Sure. And eventually it gets back to the adults. And so there was some rumors going around. And then the assistant pastors that came into the parish and, and helped with the school began to discover what was going on. And they had it. They had the facts. I don't know how much you know about the Catholic Church, but one of the things that uh, is demanded of every Catholic as in the old days is uh, weekly confession. Oh, yeah. And and so we would religiously go to confession. And, of course, the women in town knew, based on you know, what they had been told, that birth control was wrong. Yes, that's right. That's they a position of the Catholic Church, yeah. They were practicing birth control, trust me. Because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, if they did, my, my mother had eight kids. Uh, well, that was kind of average. I actually taught in a community uh, in the 70s where the average was eight kids in the and one of my wife's cousins had 22 children. 
And so, you know, yeah, big was, families are the norm in a Catholic I mean, community. If you didn't, if you didn't uh, practice birth control, you could it could get out of hand <laughs> very easily. Eight, nine, ten kids, twenty-two kids. Right. So when they confess this sin, uh, of course, the priests are getting to know what's going on, and then. Uh, in the case of the confessional, uh, if it was uh, a problem with the pastor, they would confess that. And so the assistant pastors would a bit gradually get this information. And so they would go to the bishop. And uh, the very first one that did that happened to be my uh, ninth grade religion teacher and later on ran the high school that I taught at. Mm-hmm. And so this is well before I wrote the book, and so I got a lot of information from him, but he tells me about what happened to him when he went to the bishop to report was going what was going on. And he was basically told to go home, keep his mouth shut, and mind, mind his own business. And so this is a similar uh, thing that happened with each of the succe- succeeding uh, assistant pastors that went in. There was two more, but the fourth one, said to the bishop, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to let this continue. And so he went back and he organized a group of people in the community to investigate what was going on, listen and gather the stories of all of the victims. And and what my sister was one of those people. She had been a, uh, a, a senior in high school when he first came into the community. She went to college, came back, married a farmer, and was uh, very active in the school and in the church and in the community and became a real thorn in his in his side because she was outraged by what he was doing. But he had a kind of a something else up his sleeve because he was not only an abuser, but he was a thief. Mm. And he was a well-connected thief. One of his friends from college, from uh, graduate school, uh, was the finance the chairman at the Archdiocese of, Archdiocese of Los Angeles and was connected to Joseph Kennedy, ah. John, John F. Kennedy's uh, father, right? Uh, who was a really good friend of Pope Pius XII. Oh, yeah, they were staunch Catholics, the Kennedys. Yeah, exactly. And so Kennedy was pumping and dumping oil stocks in Alaska in the 50s. And he was passing these trades on to the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, who used the proceeds to literally build the Catholic school system in the Los Angeles Archdiocese. And of course, this priest was a good friend with the finance chairman. So he got the trades too. So what he was able to, you know, slip out of the the Sunday offertory he put into this this scheme, and he got rich. You know, it was a fraudulent a scheme. And so yeah. it wasn't something that was long lasting, but they made a lot of money in a short period of time. And when it was over, by then he was familiar with uh, Joseph Kennedy and Kennedy and decided that he was going to go into the uh, real estate business. So I'm, I jumped ahead a little, a little bit because the priest took the m- proceeds and he invested them with G.D. Searle and company. Mm-hmm. G.D. Searle was the inventor of the birth control pill. <laughs> How ironic. Right. For a good Catholic priest, he's against all forms of contraception. Yes, exactly. But he, uh, because, again, this is, I'm speculating here, but because he knew what was going on in the confessional and how much uh, right. control was going on, 
natural birth control typically because they, there weren't really any alternatives. Mm-hmm. So he, he was aware of how popular this pill was going to be. And so he, oh, yeah. He actually tripled his money in three years. At so, yeah. He got a jump on the market then, really, didn't he? Yes, he did. So he was using and, his position as a priest to basically, yeah, get this scheme and scam going. Right. So he, he, um, he got out of stocks mostly, but Kennedy went into the real estate business and the, his mentors in the real estate business were Catholic priests. You know, mm-hmm. the Catholic church has massive amounts of real estate oh, around the entire world. And so they were kind of experts at, you know, how to buy and sell. And uh, they taught Kennedy and uh, this priest went right along with them. And when he died, he had 12 hotels and a couple of million dollars in securities. He was worth $25 million in 1984 when he died. That's that's a lot of money even today. Yeah, well, multiply by three or four and get today's dollars. So so much for the act of not just celibacy, but, you know, being poor, the act of being poor in ministry as well. So much for that. He was a multimillionaire. Yeah, well, the church will deny the fact that the parish priests have to to be uh, poor. (laughs) Right. Well, going back to the abuses, we kind of skipped over that a little bit. You mentioned he was abusing women. What was he doing to these women? Well, he broke up about five marriages Mm. because he would romance the best-looking women in town. And so there was that. And then probably one of the most tragic activities that he engaged in at being the the superintendent of the school and the the priest that was teaching the religion class. And he was actually known in the diocese for creating the most vocations to the priesthood and to the convent, Mm -hmm. any priest in the diocese. Well, he would take these girls on a rewards trip to one of his hotels in Disneyland and have his way with them. I found out much of the detail about that from his sister-in-law, who, because his brother was running his hotel empire. Mm-hmm. And so his sister-in-law would see him come there with these girls, and he, she knew what was going on. It, what was interesting about that is is that I got tons of information in about a three-hour conversation. Mm -hmm. And after that, her son, who had worked in the hotels as well, told her to stop talking to me. (laughs) Oh, shut that down too. Shut that down, but uh, I had plenty of information. Yeah, by then. By then. And then I talked to at least one of the girls that had, had had the experience. And again, she spoke to me several times and indicated that, when she got to the convent, there was at least five others that she was aware of that had gone through the same experience that, that she had. But again, she was so uh, upset about our conversations that she stopped talking as well. Right. Uh, in other words, we're talking about the impact on human beings, th- about things that had happened 30 years ago or more. It's very traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's obviously traumatic. And uh, so it's that's still with her. Yeah. yeah, all those decades later. Right. And so um, there was uh, a, a number of other things that my sister knew about. Uh, she had guaranteed confidentiality when she heard the stories, so she wasn't able to give me the information. But I used uh, that to, you know, build some of the yeah the narrative. Yeah, some of the narrative around it. Hey, I'm Rachel. A few years ago, I stepped away from my religious background. 
I had a lot of anger and a lot to say about evangelicalism and all the shitty parts of it. So I started a podcast to work through it and to feel less alone. A year into it, I asked my cousin-in-law to join the journey. And I said, yes, I'm Molly, co-host to the show. Turns out we had a lot more in common than just being in the same family. We were both raised in evangelical house churches in the 90s and 2000s. Talk about culty. We were homeschooled, culty, and we both left religion behind about eight years ago. So now we get together every other week and talk about the nitty gritty that happens when you leave religion. Everything from how to set healthy boundaries with religious family members, theology, hell, heaven, Paul, and how to recognize and heal from religious trauma. This podcast is our healing process, and we're hopeful that sharing our stories, other people's stories, and what we learn along the way may help others heal too. Religion leaves a mark on everyone it touches. Sometimes that mark isn't always positive. Cheers to Leaving is the perfect podcast for anyone who's questioning their faith or looking to connect with others who have been there. You can find our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So grab a drink and join us as we say, cheers to leaving. When we come back from the break in the second half of the chat with Charles Utter and his book, Roman Collar Crime, we're going to look at this issue of how in the hell did this priest get away with it for so long? It's a shocking story. And then Charles is going to reveal what happened to him later on in life. So again, there's some twists coming ahead. So look out for that in the second half. Just wanted to tell you what's coming up here in the next few episodes on the show. We're going to be delving back into the Doug Wilson world. I've got a conversation with Emily Page, who grew up in a Doug Wilson-inspired school environment in Moscow, Idaho. She actually went to Logos School, which, of course, was founded by Doug Wilson. She was sadly sexually abused for years by one of the teachers there. And her story is just, it's heart-wrenching, but at the same time, it's inspiring, too, to know that she not only survived all this horrific abuse, years of it, but now as a survivor, she's come out of the back end and she is now speaking out, telling her story. So congratulations to Emily. This is an absolutely unbelievable story. That's coming up next here on the show. And then after that, we've got a few more things lined up. We've got a conversation with Jared Stacy. I've mentioned him before. He's actually American, but he's living up in Aberdeen, Scotland, doing a doctorate. We had a long conversation about his doctoral thesis the subject of which is how conspiracy theories have sort of gone into this whole Trump evangelical world. And we had a really fascinating discussion about that. Although he's still a Christian, he's very much a progressive Christian. So there's a lot of overlap between what we talked about in terms of the Christian right, what's going on in Trump world, the evangelical scene. And then I had a really good conversation the other day with my good friends, David Johnson and Gary Hudson, who of course was on the show not too long ago, and David Johnson is the host of the Skeptics and Seekers podcast, we talked about this question that one of our listeners asked, why does Jesus get a free pass when Christians are deconstructing? He's often seen as a wise guru, a good, wise religious teacher. People like Paul end up getting more of the blame for what Christianity has become, but Jesus is seen as this sort of benign figure. We're going to ask that question, and then off the back of that, another question is, could Jesus have been some form of a cult leader? That's a fascinating question. Was he really a good, effective teacher? And we break that down. And then I've got some other stuff coming up in the pipeline. I'm going to be doing another crossover episode, actually two of them. One of them is with Rachel Bernstein of the Indoctrination Podcast. We've done this once before, and she's been listening to my series on Doug Wilson. She wanted to dive into that. And then we're going to do one on my show. 
And then the second one is going to be with the Cheers to Leaving podcast. I'm really excited to be doing both of those crossover episodes. Also, I've been doing some really good stuff over on Patreon. If you want to support the show, you'll have access to exclusive content that's only available on Patreon. And I put those out every other week between my regular podcasts. I just did one on the whole question of theodicy, the defense of God, the problem of evil. So if you wanted to delve into that topic, those are great episodes on Patreon. The links to that are always in the show notes. And actually, speaking of which, I wanted to give a thank you to Robert Palibka, who's become the latest Patreon supporter of the show. And then finally, the last piece of news, I'm really excited to announce that I'm just about ready to upload my book that I've finally gotten done. It's going to be available, first of all, on Amazon as a Kindle version. It's called Baptism, Third Times a Charm, My Story of Deconversion from Christianity. And I go through my background growing up as a kid in the Church of Christ in the Seattle, Washington area, talking about how I was baptized not just once, not just twice, but actually three times because I was so desperate to get it right. And I'm not sure if I ever did now that I've walked away from the whole thing. So that, as I say, is going to be coming soon. You can pre-order it on Amazon, and I will let you know when that drops. In fact, I'm going to do an episode when the book is ready to pre-order. I'm going to read the first chapter and release it as a podcast. And so if you like it, I'm hoping that you'll go out and buy the book. It's going to be something around $3.99, so it won't be very expensive. I'm also going to try and work on doing it as an audible version as well as a paperback. So really exciting news coming up. All right, let's get on back into the second half of this chat with Charles Utter as we continue this look at the small town priest in his book, Roman Caller Crime. The fact that he was abuser and in fact wealthy as well allowed him to stay in the community for 20 years because he was smart. He went out and used his money to hire rock star athletic coaches for the high school. All right. He was yeah, look what I'm doing for the community. Yeah. And so my high school football coach was actually a guy named Ron Earhart, who became the head coach of the New England Patriots in the early 80s. Right. So that's some big quality. names. That's the quality of the coaching. My high school basketball coach, one of two, one, my first one was his cousin, and he got caught sleeping with his cousin's wife. Not uh -oh. that relationship. But the second one uh, came out of Billings, Montana, the Catholic school there, and he had the winningest record in the history of the state of Montana in both basketball and football. He was able to attract this guy into this tiny little town mm. and coach his basketball and football teams. The sad fact there was he ultimately ended up in a 15-year relationship with this guy's wife, despite the fact that, that they had seven or eight kids. My God. And of course, I got the full story on that from the oldest son, who's a good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. uh, who also was a great coach, but uh, his dad uh, was vulnerable because he was an alcoholic, and the priest uh, offered to help him get into recovery, heal the problems in the family, bring him into the community, and then uh, ultimately ended up, you know, having this relationship with his wife. It really destroyed this family. It was one of the one of the saddest impacts that, that are related in the book. I can't imagine. It reminds me, in this country, we have a guy, he's dead now, but he was, his name was Jimmy Savile, and he's, he was a notorious pedophile and abuser of children for decades, and he was a TV star, he was a celebrity, but what he did, he was a similar uh, MO in that he raised millions of pounds for hospitals and charities and things like that, and so that was his kind of aim was to distract people with all of his philanthropic stuff, 
So it sounds like this priest was doing a similar kind of deal, wasn't he? Look how good I'm I'm doing for the community. No one's going to question what I'm doing because look at all the results I'm getting. Yeah, and a similar strategy, just a little bit different in the detail. But, mm-hmm. you know, the funny thing was that all of this money that he had accumulated when he died, it was supposed to all go back to charity. Right. He had no, he had no family that he knew of anyway, other than one, one kid out there. Right. I happened to be in the uh, estate planning business, so I knew exactly ah. what the issues were. And he um, used a lawyer that really kind of, well, he didn't know what he was doing. Oh, right. He was incompetent. Right. So the charity, charitable gifts were supposed to shelter everything from tax. And in reality, the trust that was created to do so uh, was invalidated by the IRS. And so it was all taxable. And they went into a 10-year battle with the IRS to try to to fight this thing. And they lost. And during that 10-year period, the estate was dissipated. Because if you remember, I said that he owned 12 hotels. Yeah, he had an empire, really. Right. And so the cash flow wasn't there to keep him maintained. Right. Plus the timing uh, was such that the economy is in the doldrums. And those values drop uh, independent upon any inability to maintain the property. So it was just magnified the issue. And they lost the entire estate to the IRS. In fact, the tax bill was $18 million. And by the time that they were uh, going to pay the tax, the assets weren't worth $18 million anymore. And the estate is still open. If you go online and Google Eugene Lemire's estate, you'll be able to find out all these details. Oh, right. That was his name, Eugene Lemire. Eugene Lemire's with an S. Oh, I see, Lemire's. So what ended up happening in the end, he basically got away with it all from what you're what you're telling us. He never was investigated by the church. He was never dismissed. Well, he was never fired or what? What happened? The fourth assistant pastor uh, got the ball rolling and, and, and members of the community, they were badgering the, the bishop over and over and over again, multiple meetings. Uh, he kept trying to protect the priest and effectively did protect the priest. They were about ready to quit trying. It was, you know, right at the end. But remember, he was the superintendent of a Catholic school. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, there were nuns teaching at that school. And remember what he had done to the girls who were going into the convent. Well, he didn't just pick on the ones that were new to the convent. He uh, was found to have been having sex with two of the nuns that were teaching at the high school. And that created so much anger in the... uh, at the mother house uh, with amongst the uh, mother superior. And uh, the bishop was under a huge amount of pressure, and they finally decided that they had to get rid of him. And they actually defrocked him. Yeah. Oh, so did they? They stripped him. Stripped him. Wow. Uh, he was no longer a priest, but that's not the end of the story. I was going to say, yeah, he should have ended up in jail, really, for what he did to those girls. But they, they let him go, and he moved to Denver, which is where I'm from. Uh, to run his his hotels, all empire. And after a couple of years, the bishop in Denver reinstated him to the priesthood. No, when the months and years before he died, he was saying mass around the Denver Archdiocese. Wow, so, I did not see that coming. No, the twist was, at the end of the story, unbelievable. That he got back into the 
into the pulpit, as it were, as a priest. Didn't didn't the bishop in Denver know his backstory in South Dakota? Well, yeah, I wasn't able to get any facts on that, but uh, I, assume, I assume he knew because these bishops talked to each other. They would have, yeah, you'd think so. But I hear again, I just think that uh, it, would, it didn't matter in his mind because nobody's going to find out about it anyway, right? Yeah, he's that couple of states away, and so he can just pick up where he left off. Was he continuing to abuse anyone in Denver? Did you find that, anything out about that? Well, no, I didn't hear anything about abuse. I just heard rumors about the women that he was escorting around the community. In Denver? Yeah, there's. Uh, I've got a bunch of friends down here. We get together about three or four times a year, and uh, they were living here with it at the time that he uh, moved into the Denver community, and they would observe him at basketball games you know, in the Denver Nuggets, but they, they saw that he was uh, sometimes with multiple women at the same time, according according to them. My God. Uh, and it was interesting because I think, oh, I'm, I'm sure it was well before I wrote the book, I uh, was in the, uh, like I said, in the estate planning world, I was really a life insurance agent who did estate planning. So I'd have meetings with various um, clients for lunch and, and talking about their situations. And so I'm in a town about 60 miles away, in a, and uh, we're meeting at the Holiday Inn, and uh, he doesn't show up right away. So I'm walking around the Holiday Inn, uh, just looking at the pictures on the walls and whatever, and here's a big sign, property owned by Eugene Lemire's. <laughs> there he is again. He ended up at one of his hotels. Yeah. What and chances? I think he had three more here in Denver, so. It's crazy to think that a defrocked priest could actually be reinstated. I mean, that's, you know, because they did do something in South Dakota, but then they just completely reversed that in Denver. I, I have a hard time believing that the bishop would cover for him, you know, in Denver like that. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I don't have any information about the rationale that went into that. It's just, you know, speculation, but uh, mm. it is it is sad no matter what the, the rationale was. So who do you want to read your book? I mean, who's the intended reader of this book? I mean, it's obviously a, it's a thing in the news right now, isn't it? We've heard story after story after story of Catholic priests that have abused kids. It's been covered up. It's been protected. This is a story that never seems to go away, does it? What are you trying to do with the book? What's the aim of the book? Well, um, I'm not sure I had any grand designs. I uh, My family was really close, so we had ga uh, gatherings every other summer where we all got together, and we'd, that's all we'd talk about was this priest. Mm. And somebody once said, you know, somebody ought to write a book, and so I decided to do that. So as well be you. Yeah. It was really kind of uh, out of a need to publicize, I think, more directly what was what had, we knew had been going on, and primarily because my sister had been so involved. But I also thought that the people who had been victimized would benefit by reading the book, you know, I wasn't the only person. This was sure. uh, make those are the people, yeah, a little bit better that you weren't the only s stupid one. You know, that's how people think of themselves once they've gone allowed somebody to take advantage of them. They feel like it's their fault and that they were stupid or whatever. Uh -huh. And so, uh, making it uh, obvious that he had had so many other victims, I think, was positive. But you know, uh, I'm still a Catholic. I practice my, my my Catholic religion, mm -hmm. you know, rigid Catholic like we had in the 1950s, but I still celebrate my religion with the Catholic community. And I think that Catholics 
need to be sure that they're not being taken advantage of. They, they have to stop believing that priests are saints. And trust me, there's still a lot of, especially the older ones, who feel that way. Mm-hmm. The church doesn't do anything to disabuse them of that. And so I think it's helpful if they know that these priests are human, and if they get approached by a priest for some sort of illicit activity, they should not feel like they can't resist. Mm-hmm. That because he's a priest, they should keep it quiet and allow him to do what he wants to do. And I think this book could promote that. And the other thing is, this is a very small town. And because of all of the hotels that he had around the, around the country, he was gone a lot. He was having his girlfriend's relation, uh, relations with his girlfriends all over the country. And he could have been abusing hundreds of women. Yeah, you I mean, never know the yeah, whole story. Yeah. You know, we got the story of our local situation, but this guy was uh, amazing. In fact, one of the things that came up uh, when people started looking into the situation is that the uh, local sheriff or the local cop in town told a story about a phone call that he got one time from the police in Billings, Montana, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with the U.S. Yes, I am. I've been there. Oh, have you? Okay. Yes, I, I did road trips. through. I, I grew up in the Seattle area. Oh, you did? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was. From, they called him from Billings, Montana, said they'd picked up this guy that claims to be the pastor in uh, New England, North Dakota, and he's got grocery bags full of cash in his trunk. Okay, and that, as you do. <laughs> that's how he traveled. Money in the back. The girl that uh, told me about her trip to Disney World, the rewards trip, said that he stopped at restaurants along the way, and whenever he did, open up the trunk, pull out money uh, from his grocery bags full of cash to pay for things. And then after I wrote the book, <laughs> this is all part another part of the story that we could talk about, but there was, of course, a public school in town too. Being rigid Catholics, we weren't supposed to associate with those mm-hmm. or non-Catholic. Secular kids. Yeah, so summer times we'd be great friends. Winter times when the school was not, we could yeah. talk. You were enemies. Nick, <laughs> they kind of resented that, which, I, you know, is... You can understand that. Totally understandable. So they, they would spy on the priest and... I heard a story about a, a night when he was uh, seen through the windows, windows, window peeking, undressing a woman and doing his thing in his in his office. And for some reason, he was able to catch them. Right. And he comes running out of the house and they take off. And But they didn't leave. They just ran far enough to so they couldn't see him. And he went into his garage. And I don't know why he did this, whether he suspected that they might have known more than they actually did, but he pulled out a, uh, he had a safe in there and he pulled out a cigar box and they saw him rifling through cash in his cigar, cigar box. So he was a, he was a stash in his cash. That's for sure. And, say, yeah. He had money laying around everywhere. Not yeah. just walking around money. He had bags of cash in the trunk of his car. Yeah. And he was very secretive about his investments too, because one of the coaches that I mentioned to you, he would take money, cash that he was given, drive from New England, North Dakota to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and give it to his investment guy. So nothing done on the phone. Right. Everything done in person. And, yeah, you know, cash that's about a six, 600 mile one way. 
That's for a long trip. Yeah. Just to hand over a bag of cash. Yeah. And so, so you want to shake the off of the books. Yeah. In a way, I've been able to talk to his investment. <laughs> yeah. But, well, you could find out. It's ironic, though, that his estate ended up being basically liquidated in the end, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's hugely yeah. ironic. After all the stuff he did and, and abused so many people and scammed and ripped off so many people to end up with nothing in the end is kind of a sad twist to the story at the end of it all. Yes, it is. You know, a fitting ending in a way. I might not have read the book if I or wrote the book if I had realized that he was giving everything here, if he actually had given everything back to charity. Because mm-hmm. the school where he stole a lot of the money from was a major beneficiary of of his estate, but they never got a penny. <laughs> never got a penny. Well, remind us again the name of the book. I know you've got to go. Where can people find it? How do they get a hold of you? Well, the book is called Roman Collar Crime. It's uh, available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. The subtitle is Transgressions of a, a Small Town Priest. And then if people wanted to get a hold of you, I'm thinking there might be someone out there who may have been a victim of this guy who wants to get a hold of you. How can they find you? Is there a place on social media to get a hold of you? Oh, yeah. They can go onto my uh, my uh, Facebook account. I'm on Facebook. I have a, uh, a page called Roman Collar Crime on Facebook as well. It's about the only social media that it, I do. I do mm-hmm. for business purposes, but... There is a way to get a hold of you. Yeah, if someone wanted to contact you, they could go through Facebook or at least look at the page on the book. Yeah, absolutely. That would be the easiest way to, to do that. My phone number is on my Facebook account. My email address is there as well. And so, uh, yeah, they can they can contact. In fact, I've had a couple of other people call me uh, since the, mm-hmm. the book came out. One was a, one of my sister's best friends that uh, was abused while she was a sophomore in high school. It's just really sad stuff. Horrible things, isn't it? So this sounds like Amazon's the way to go. If they want to get a hold of you, they can look up your Facebook page. Thank right. you so much, Charles. Really enjoyed chatting with you. This is it is an unbelievable story, isn't it? You could, you literally couldn't make this up. Truth is stranger than fiction, isn't it? Absolutely. This, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you just couldn't imagine. <laughs> you can't make this up. No, well, you can't. I, I wish you all the best with the book. I'm now interested. I want to read it myself, so I may go look it up on Amazon. I'll let you know if I get a hold of it. Right. I appreciate it. And anybody who wants to read the book, I appreciate you as well. You can contact me for uh, bulk purchases because some right. people are using it to uh, with their uh, book clubs. And I'll, I'll, run. I'll make sure you get a discount. So, Oh, even better. Well, listen, Charles, I'll let you go. I know you have another thing in a few minutes, but listen, it's been great chatting with you. All the best with the book, and I will speak to you again. Maybe we'll see how things are going. Okay, and thank you very much for having me. Sure, appreciate it.